I too would like to welcome everyone out to the services this morning. Especially like to welcome our visitors that we have here with us today. We appreciate you being here with us this morning. Obviously, today is Easter Sunday. We see all the, the beautiful dresses and all the young men dressed up. Everyone's looking forward to the, the Easter egg hunt we have shortly. And let's be honest, here at this congregation, we really do not have an Easter egg hunt. It's more of an Easter egg pickup. Um, I remember there was a time that we actually had to look for the eggs. Now you have to look where to step because you're going to step on one. But that's great. We love that just so long as everybody knows. Uh, like the trunk or treat, me and Brian will be downstairs giving our economics lesson in taxation to the children. Got to hand that candy over. You know, I got to thinking about all the, the new outfits and the Easter egg hunt and the, the Easter bunny and, and did a little research on some of these things and some of these strange traditions, I guess, and, and I do mean strange, because I want you to think about this for a minute, especially the parents here. We are here on Sunday morning worshiping and singing praises to an almighty God, and we have just informed our children prior to the service, that there is a giant rabbit running around outside laying eggs full of candy all over our property. Strange traditions. But actually, the first story of the Easter Bunny laying eggs in a garden was published in 1680. Eggs have been seen as ancient symbols of fertility, with springtime is considered a, a, a rebirth or a new life. Interesting considering we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Originally, the decorating of the Easter eggs uh, represented Christ. The, the red and the yellow and the blue. The blue representing his love. The red representing the blood that was shed for us. And the yellow representing his resurrection. Americans spend $1.9 billion on Easter candy every year. Second only to Halloween. 70% of Easter egg candy is chocolate. And this is a good one, and I believe this is true. 76% of Americans believe the ears of the chocolate bunny have to be eaten first. <laughs> Cadbury eggs, which I love, didn't know this, introduced in 1875. Do you all remember the Peeps? My brother used to love those. They were first created in the 1950s, and to make a single Peep took 27 hours. I think they've stopped this now. But I remember Aggie Feed receiving different colored chickens. They would get pink and purple and blue chickens in at the feed store. Wearing your best clothes on, on Easter Sunday is a long-standing tradition with Christians. I read this tradition started as these new clothes represents the new creature that we are as Christians. The holiday of Easter is a great time to spend with family and friends and is celebrated differently around the world. But for all of us, Easter is a day set aside to remember the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we gather here this morning, I know many of you, especially the parents, are already thinking, man, as soon as this is over, we've got to get to the car, we've got to get the baskets, line the kids up so Katrina can take the annual picture in front of the sign. Some of you are thinking, man, I hope my kid doesn't cry and run away like he did last year. Some of you are already thinking about the Easter dinner that you have to get ready as soon as we get out of here. Brothers and sisters, I think all these things are great. But let's remember why we are here today, why we are here every Sunday, 
It's to worship our God. And we're going to take just a few minutes to reflect on our Lord and Savior. If you'd like, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. If ye keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain, for I had delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, young people here this morning, I know we have a busy day, and our minds are going 100 miles an hour. But hear this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made, you can become a child of God. You can have every single sin that you've ever committed or ever will commit washed away and have an eternal home in him with heaven. This morning I will admit to you I have a very difficult time talking about the resurrection of Jesus without talking about his burial. I can't speak of his burial without talking about his death and how he got there. So, brethren, this morning, if you'd bear with me, we're going to take a look at the scriptures. And we're not only going to study the resurrection, we're going to study what led up to that. This morning, we're going to read throughout the Gospels of the time leading up to the resurrection. You will see throughout the readings, the arrest and the trials and the beatings and the crucifixion. And yes, the, the, uh, the resurrection eventually, it all moves fairly quickly. You know, throughout our lives, there have been very significant events that have occurred. Some more than others. I remember when I was a child, I would play checkers with my mother's grandfather. At the time I was playing checkers with him as a preteen, he was 99 years old. He fought in World War I. He was born in 1892. Imagine all the things that he has witnessed. What are the, some, some of the things that you have seen? Just recently, there have been things that will be written in the history books, monumental events that people will talk about generations from now. But, brethren, I'm here to argue today there is no greater event than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no greater event than his death, burial, and his resurrection. There is no other event that has impacted humankind more than this. There is not an event more significant than this. And what I want you to remember and meditate on as we go through this event, and again, I say this singularly because, again, I have a hard time separating the three, but as we go through this, remember the reason why. Brothers and sisters, you're the reason. People around the world today are celebrating this event that occurred for me personally and for my soul. If you'd like to follow along with me this morning, we're going to start in Mark 14. Jesus and his disciples have uh, just finished the Passover celebration there in verses 12 through 26. And it's during this celebration in verse 18, Jesus informs his disciples Verily I say unto you, one of you which eateth with me shall betray me. These chain of events that we're talking about probably started somewhere in the evening time. And our Lord and Savior has just made it known that he is aware that he will be betrayed. And I've mentioned this before, but have you ever really thought about that? I can't imagine that. 
I cannot imagine living my life knowing that someone that I hold dear to me, knowing someone that I call brother, will someday betray me and turn me over to be murdered. Jesus knows that he is about to endure the most horrific, horrific thing a human can possibly go through. The most trying, humiliating, and painful time in his life. He knows the enemy, Satan, will be there every step of the way. And he knows what he will face. And he looks at his closest friends, knowing that one of them will betray him. Folks, I've been through stuff in my life. I've been through some pretty bad situations at work. And one of the comforts that I've always had is knowing the man beside me had my back. Your Lord and Savior didn't have that comfort with his friends. Jesus knew he would be betrayed and later denied. But he knew it had to be that way. And brother, that hurt. It was during this time the Lord's Supper, our communion service that we took part in just a few moments ago, was instituted. This is my body and this is my blood. Brethren, he is hours away from the cruel death that he knew was going to be grueling. But he knew that you and I needed this to occur. They left and went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I know we've heard this story countless times. We sing about the Garden of Gethsemane. But brother, have you ever really thought about what occurred in the garden that night? Put yourself there. See yourself beside your Lord and Savior. And as you see and you hear what he endured, understand he did that for you and because of you. The reality is, is this place, this garden was probably nothing special. It was a garden outside of Jerusalem. Maybe a small garden. Grew olive trees there. I've read that these gardens would have walls around them with a gate. But it was a place that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, found solitude and he found refuge. It was a place that he could talk to his father. And Jesus and his disciples arrive at the garden and he leaves them and he takes Peter and James and John deeper into the garden. You see, although he has his brothers, he has this closer group of men with him. During what he knows will be excruciating, he says, come with me. He needed these men to see and witness his agony. And although this was a place of solitude for our Lord and Savior, that would soon change. This place would become a place of anguish, a place that dropped your Savior to his face. An internal struggle between the flesh and the soul that you and I cannot possibly understand or grasp. In verse 33, we read, Jesus Jesus began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. That means he was struck with terror. Brother, I want you to stop and think about that. Put your Bibles down and just think. Your Lord and Savior, the man that would save you from your sins, was terrified. And brother, you know what the reality is? The reality is I did that to him because of my sins, because of my actions, because of my thoughts. My Lord and Savior was struck with terror. Have you ever been terrified? Do you know there are certain physical things that happen to you that you cannot stop in moments of pure and extreme terror? 
Jesus looked at these events ahead. He knew his Father's will. He knew it must be done. But that didn't make it any easier. Verse 34, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death, overwhelmed with sorrow. Think about what he was feeling and what he was thinking. You think your Lord and Savior didn't know what a crucifixion was? They were common at the time. Absolutely he knew. Imagine the stress and the anxiety of just knowing the pain that he was going to endure. Brother, besides knowing the pain that he would endure, you know the other reality that our Lord and Savior must have faced? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Since the beginning, Christ shared a relationship with his Father. A relationship and a love that is beyond human words, certainly beyond my words. The reality that he must face is he knows his Father hates sin. Proverbs 6, these six things doth Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, for he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Brethren, there are very few things in this world stronger than a father's love for his child. And compared to his My love for my child is considered and described as evil. Imagine Jesus knowing his father will be unable to be in his presence. And I ask you this morning, what do you think was really more painful? Knowing what you were about to endure or knowing that your father couldn't even look at you? Christ was betrayed by a friend. He will soon be denied by friends and brothers. Your Lord and Savior knows he will be tried illegally, rejected, despised, and condemned to death by the same people that he came here to save. He knows that the most powerful government on earth is about to use every resource to destroy him in spirit, body, and reputation. They will bring their human wrath down on him. And he knows that the people he came to save hate him. Think about that. He knows that shortly he will stand before them and they will spit in his face. But brethren, amongst all these thoughts, his father will soon see him as sin. These were times of extreme internal, mental, and physical anxiety. And brother, I know I've mentioned this before, but we as a people, as recipients of this great sacrifice, we have to understand his suffering started long before they drove those nails in his hands. Sometimes there is a greater pain than physical pain. Luke 22 and 44, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was it were great drops of blood falling on the ground. We know the medical terminology for this. And the capillaries in his forehead, they begin to burst is what's going on. It's a medical condition. The description of it is when fear is piled upon fear, when agony of suffering is laid upon an older suffering, until the highly sensitized person can no longer sustain the pain. Remember, although he was God in flesh, 
he still had a human body just like ours. He felt pain. He felt weariness. Do you know your Lord and Savior got hungry? He grew tired. He grew weary. He had sorrow. Like we studied a few weeks ago, he cried. Although our Lord and Savior, he was still a man. As he prayed in the garden, the pressure was almost more than his human body could bear. His body physically began to give out. The brethren, as horrible as this sounds, praise God he made it out of the garden and to the cross. You want to try and grasp how difficult that was? I will tell you what kind of puts this in perspective for me just a little bit. Understand, this is the Son of God. He has performed miracles. He's brought people from the dead. But in Luke 20, uh, 22 and 43, And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. He was broke, and God knew it and sent an angel to assist. On a side note, you know what's funny? We get ourselves in situations, and we think we're too good for God's assistance. I got this on my own, God. I'll fix it. We talked about this in a prior study, but I would like to remind you as a Christian, we celebrate this time of year. We even rejoice over the sacrifice for our sakes. You know who did not rejoice that day? Satan. And brethren, I do believe Satan was in the garden with our Lord and Savior that night. Satan was wishing Christ would just give up right there. Just give out in the garden. Don't ever make it to the cross. Very important and telling verses, verse 35. It says, he went forward a little and fell on the ground. And yes, I'm sure he was humbling himself, but I also believe he was physically exhausted. Verse 36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but thou will. Christ knew what was coming. He knew God's plan all along. Matter of fact, in John 10, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Christ was not trying to get out of this situation, but he was asking, Father, is there any other way? I will do what you ask. I'll be the sacrifice, but can we do it another way? My spirit truly is weak. I mean, my spirit truly is ready, but my flesh is weak. I've told you this story before. Years ago, I was in a pathology class, and this doctor teaching the class, he had a different opinion of all this. Talking strictly on the physical things that our Lord and Savior was going to and the science of what he was going through, he believed he was closer to death here than we think. Just through the sheer anxiety and exhaustion. Think about that. At this point, my spirit truly is ready, but my flesh is weak. His stance on that is not my flesh, meaning my desires or my wants are weak, but my actual physical body was becoming too weak to endure this any longer. He simply believed the Son of God was praying for life. Not trying to get out of the cross, but praying for life to get to the cross. Praying for the strength to take one more step out of that garden and to the cross for me and for you. Throughout all he endured in the garden, this was just the beginning. And in verse 41, the hour has come. Judas appeared with a great multitude. 
I've read estimates anywhere from 400 to 1,000 men with swords and weapons. In John, we read Jesus asking them, Whom seek ye? And they replied, Jesus of Nazareth. He replied, I am he. Translated from, I am. These elite soldiers heard, I am, because they knew what that meant. And they fell to the ground. John 8 and 58, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Of course, we know Peter draws a sword and chops off a soldier's ear, and Christ restored his ear. You know what I've always wondered? These men, these elite soldiers that were perpetrating this illegal arrest, and it was illegal. I'm not going to get into the study of that this morning, but they broke their own rules to make this arrest. Aaron, they violated their CCP. But I've always wondered what the soldiers were thinking. Okay, guys, we've got to go arrest this guy. He claims he's their Messiah. He's a nut job, claiming all kinds of miraculous things, and then they witness it. But then they still bound up Jesus and took him to the first of many mockeries they called a trial. During this time, Peter is denying him, by the way. Christ was questioned, and the assault started. When Jesus did not give them the answers that they wanted to hear, they struck him and they hit him. Brethren, they were slapping the Son of God, and he stood there and he took it. Christ responded with what I think is probably, to me, one of the most gut-wrenching comments he makes. If I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if will, why smitest thou me? Brother, let me tell you, I do my best and I fail, but I do my best to maintain my Christianity. But do you have any idea what I would do to someone if they were treating my child like that? Your father in heaven, he allowed it. It was his design all along. Christ was then taken to the high priest. Here the illegal and false testimony begins to mount up. Two false witnesses come before the council. Matthew 26 and 63, the high priest demands, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tellest whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Pretty bold. Christ responds, thou hast said. He's now accused of blasphemy, found guilty of death. They spit in his face, buffeted him means they struck him repeatedly. They would slap Jesus in the face. Who did that? If you're the son of God, tell us who did that. Prophesize that. When these ridiculous and unjust trials were done, our Lord and Savior was not only emotionally hurting, but physically hurting. His blood started running in the garden. It's getting worse. But you know, up until this point, These trials, if that's what you want to call them, they had no backbone, they really had no teeth to them. They had to get him before the Sanhedrin court. It'd be like our Supreme Court, I guess. Luke 22 and 6, And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, I tell you, you will not believe. And if I also ask you, ye will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand, the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto him, Ye say that I am. We know they took him to Pilate. The charge he was convicted of was blasphemy. 
That doesn't stand up in Roman court. But there is a charge that will. So they change the charge. Pilate says if he's broken the law, go judge him yourselves. They respond in John 18 and 31, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. You see, they're accusing Christ of treason. He's saying he's the king of the Jews. Luke 23, he's saying he's another Pilate. Pilate then starts questioning Jesus. You can read that in John 18. Understand, Pilate is only concerned for his kingdom. He wants to make sure Christ is not trying to overthrow his worldly kingdom. Pilate ultimately decides he's not and says, I find in him no fault at all. He's not trying to overthrow Rome. There's no treason here. But he's riled up everybody all to Galilee. Pilate finds his way out. Oh, that's Herod's jurisdiction. You send him to Herod. What I find interesting of all the people involved in this thing, Pilate actually was the only one that was trying to stick to his own law. Herod is considered to be the fifth trial of Jesus. It really wasn't a trial. He just wanted to see him perform a miracle. He mocked him and sent him back. He's now back to Pilate. Pilate said to, to uh, go away, you know, basically I'll just... You know, I'll chastise him. We'll release him per the custom of the, the Passover. I'll just blow it off. And of course, we know that the Jews demanded Barabbas, true criminal convicted of a capital offense, demanded that he be released. Paul asked, well, what should we do with Jesus? And they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. We know Pilate washed his hand and stated, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See you to it. On another side note, parents, if you ever wonder if your kids pay attention in church, I guess Ethan was probably eight, nine years old. Someone was talking about this very passage and he slipped a note to Lori. Was Pilate a good man? She still has that in her Bible today. But imagine the gall at their next statement, Matthew 27 and 25. Listen to this. His blood be on us and on our children. True arrogance and hatred. Matthew 27 and 26. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I like the way that they just kind of glaze over that. And when he scourged Jesus... It is said so matter of fact because quite frankly, it was part of the crucifixion. It was the initial act. A short whip uh, tied, you know, sharpened iron and bone. They stripped the accused down of their clothing and they beat them from head to toe. The purpose of the scourging was to physically weaken them just short of death. They didn't want them hanging on the cross for weeks. Blood loss was extreme. Pain was unbearable. And this whip literally cut to the bone. It was not uncommon to see bone protruding during these beatings. They placed a robe on our Savior, placed a crown of thorns on his head and a reed in his right hand. They bowed down before him and they mocked him. They made fun of him. They teased him. They spit in his face, hell king of the Jews. How many times have we read this? How many times have we heard a sermon on this? When is the last time you looked at this in its entirety and owned it? 
Understand the Son of God was spit on because of me and because of you. That was our fault. They made fun of, teased, mocked my Savior because of Brad. Brent, they repeatedly slapped my Lord and Savior because of me. After all his bleeding, our Lord and Savior was most likely going into shock. He's been up all night. He's exhausted, tired, exhausted, bleeding profusely, mentally drained, emotionally distraught. And they said, here, carry your cross. They actually just carried the cross beam, but it's estimated it weighed about 110 pounds. They took him to Golgotha. Matthew 27, 35, again, just a very brief phrase, and they crucified him. So few words to describe such a horrific death. The entire incident is the most important event in all of human history. Put yourself there and make it personal. They put this cross on the ground and threw your Jesus on that cross. They drove nails through his hands. They would dig a hole at the bottom of the cross, and when they raised that cross up, it just dropped in. Then they nailed his feet to that cross. But you see, there was a little play between his hands and his feet. He was able to pull himself up and push himself up, and that's the way he would get breath. But unfortunately, as he's doing that, those nails are ripping through his feet, and they're pulling through his arms. The nerves and the ligaments and the tendons, they're getting destroyed and blown out. The muscles are beyond cramping. Eventually, the Son of God was unable to pull himself up or push himself up. He was no longer able to get air. He is now doing everything he can just to get one small gasp of air. You see, when a person's crucified, they could often get small gasps. Unfortunately, due to the strain on their lungs, they couldn't exhale. Ultimately, carbon dioxide builds up in their lungs and in their bloodstream scientific part here when he was pierced and the water and the blood came out that's a physical occurrence when too much oxygen enters your bloodstream spasms begin remarkably that's actually what allowed people including Jesus to get these small gasps of air these spasms as he's jerking he'd get those gasps of air Pain was ongoing. There would be cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermediate, intermittent, partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from the lacerated back as he moves up and down trying to get a breath, a medical examiner wrote. He continued with, a deep crushing pain in the chest begins as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. The loss of tissue fluids has reached critical levels. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to grasp in small gulps of air. And that's your Savior. That's Christ on the cross for the sin that you and I committed. We put Him there. Could you have withstood all that knowing you did nothing to deserve it? While on the cross, Jesus made seven statements. And we're not going to go in depth on all those, but I would like to go through them. Luke 23 and 43, And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise, talking to the man on the cross beside him. 
John 19 and 26, talking to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Mark 15 and 34, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's seen him as sin. John 19 and 28, I thirst. They gave him vinegar. And in 19 and 30, it's finished. Luke 23 and 46, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And I went a little out of order, but absolutely the most loving words, the most forgiving and comforting words that have ever been spoken on this earth. Luke 23 and 34, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Your Lord and Savior gave all on the cross just for you. Turn to Matthew 27, starting in verse 50. Matthew 27, starting in verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the garden after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the, uh, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had honed out of the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Now the next day that followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember what that deceiver said while he was yet alive. After three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto him, Ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as ye can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Jesus is now buried in a rich man's tomb, as was prophesied. But the Pharisees knew the teachings and said, Hey, his people, they're going to try to steal his body from the tomb, and then say he rose from the dead. So Pilate did a few things to ensure that there were no shenanigans. First, this stone was placed in front of the tomb. This thing would have been four to six feet tall, a foot wide. It had been in this little trough in front of the tomb. And it would have weighed one to two tons. Again, in Matthew 27, 66, we read that they sealed the tomb. They placed a Roman seal upon it. The Roman Empire declared at that time that he was, in fact, dead. It was a sign of authenticity. The other side of that is if you were found breaking that, a Roman seal, you were put to death. Pilate set a watch over the tomb. And there's a couple of different opinions on this watch, but most people agree that a Roman unit would have consisted of 16 men. 
The interesting thing about these Roman units is that they had very strict rules. They were very disciplined. Each man was responsible for six square feet of space. The members of the unit were not allowed to sit or lean during a tour of duty. And if anyone fell asleep, the entire unit was burned to death. To say the least, the religious leaders of the time and everyone involved were very comfortable with the security of the tomb. But brethren, despite man's effort to keep the body of Christ in the tomb, God had different plans. And we know that Christ was resurrected. There are four separate accounts in the Gospels of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, the very thing that we celebrate this Easter Sunday. The recording of the resurrections can be found in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20. And we're not going to read every account this morning, but we will turn to John 20. And John 20 can be broken down kind of into three different deals here. Uh, Verse 1 through 10 is the discovery of the empty tomb. Verses 11 through 18, Jesus appears to Mary. And in verses 19 and on are the appearance of the disciples and, and especially Thomas. We're going to read that this morning. Please turn to John 20. Starting in verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto him, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeketh and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For they that knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again upon their own, their own home, but Mary stood without the, at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeing two angels in white, sitting the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had said thus, she turned, back, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said unto her, Mary, she turned to him, and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren. And say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father, and to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. 
Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the prints of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, after his disciples were within, and Thomas with them, then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Brother, in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's our gospel message. The question often asked is, what really is the significance of the resurrection? Why is that important to me as a Christian? I mean, I understand the significance of the cross, Sean. I mean, somebody had to be the sacrifice. He died for our sins and the blood. I get all that, but why the resurrection? What's so important about that? You know, I believe there are four reasons why the resurrection is so important for us today. The first reason the resurrection is so important for us today is the resurrection, the fact that your Lord and Savior rose from the dead, proves He is who He is. He is the I Am. Your God is the Creator of all. There is no other God. And I want you to think about that for a moment. If Christ had not risen, everything that you know to be true, the Bible, the truth, would be null and void. If one truth was not factual about him, then we'd have a problem. You know what separates your God and your Savior from all the false gods in the world today? It's resurrection. There have been countless faiths that point to some form of Messiah or spiritual leader that died or martyred for their faith or their belief system. But Jesus Christ is the only true Savior of the only true God that died but lives again. Recognizing and believing that He truly is the Son of God is fundamental for our salvation. Matthew 10 and 32, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. Since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, men have been willing to die for this gospel message. That's the importance of proving who he was. And that brings us up to the second point. Your Savior conquered the grave. Revelations 1 and 18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Your Savior is not dead. Your Savior is not some martyr long gone. 
Your Savior is alive and well in the presence of His Father right now. That's your Jesus. You can weep at the cruelty of the cross. You can cry at the fact that your sins put Him there. But brethren, don't weep at the tomb. Because the tomb's empty. First, the resurrection proves who He was and who He is. Our Lord and Savior fulfilled all the prophecies statistically impossible unless you are the Son of the living God. Then it proved that our Lord and Savior conquered death. Again, separating Him from the many false gods in the world today. Thirdly, I believe the resurrection shows us that God is a God of truth and is a God of His Word. Numbers 23 and 19, God is not a man that he should die, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? I read somewhere, and I don't, I don't know this to be an exact number, but I read somewhere there are over 8,000 promises from God to his people. Think of all the promises, and he keeps them. And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Mark 10 and 27. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Mark 11 and 24. Behold, the fowls are there, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Matthew 6 and 26. I'll never leave thee. Hebrews 13. I am thy shield. Genesis 15. I will strengthen thee. In Isaiah 41. These things I have spoken unto you that ye might have peace. In the world world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. John 16 and 33. And the list goes on and on. But I want to remind you of one last promise this morning. That leads us to the last reason the resurrection is so important for us. The resurrection, again, proved that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proved He did conquer to the grave. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves our God is a God of His Word. And brethren, because of that, the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves we too, as His children, will conquer the grave. John 14 and 19, Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But see, ye see me, because I live, ye shall also live. The life of a Christian does not end with your burial. Your life continues. You spend eternity in everlasting paradise. John 14 and 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe in me also. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 1 Corinthians 15 and 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God, the tomb of Jesus is empty. You know, science continues to prove the existence of God. Archaeology continues to find more and more evidence supporting the Scriptures. Archaeology 
I believe, will come closer and closer to proving everything. They now believe they've actually found evidence of the tomb of Jesus Christ. But brethren, they will never find the body of Jesus Christ. Tomb's empty. They will never find Jesus. The question this morning is, have you found Jesus? Brethren, you've heard the gospel message this morning. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God? And are you willing to repent of your sins and start a new life with Him? Turn with me to Romans 6. Romans 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection." Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Are you willing to be baptized with Him this morning? Your Savior endured all, suffered all, and rose again. Not because He had to, but because He loves you. Matthew 26 and 53, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and He shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. You know, we sing a song, 10,000 angels, that's not really accurate. There have been 72,000 angels. And of course, Tim studied that one of those would have been sufficient. But brethren, He chose to save you, and He chose to save me. So as we reflect on the cross, and we reflect on this, the cruel, cruel torture he went through. And most importantly, this morning when we reflect on his resurrection, brethren, let's praise God and let's celebrate that our God is an awesome God, that he loves us, and he wants to spend eternity with you. Do you want eternity in heaven? I guess that's the real question this morning. Can you imagine that? I started putting a study together on heaven trying to put together everything we know about heaven, you know, such as the streets paved with gold. I was talking to Tim and Jeff the other day, and the more I study this, you know what the reality is? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we're walking on, because we will be in the presence of God. And that will be overwhelming. And we will be in such awe. Brothers and sisters, I want you to be there. If you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to do that this morning. You need to be buried with Him in baptism today and do not delay. If you've fallen away from Him or you need the prayers of the church, this family here, if there be one of either class, we ask you please come forward 
as we stand and sing. Bring my heart, dear Lord.